Hey, host Tom Melville here. This is episode two of our Forgotten River series. So if you haven't listened to episode one, Dead Fish in an Empty Lake, go back and give it a listen. Uh, just the different types of rocks. They like ground them down and use them as their paints. Rock shelves aren't common. There's quite a few of them along the Darling, but, but they're very significant where they are. Yeah. Mm. It'd be a big float to get all the way up here, though. I mean, that's about... What, 10 metres or something? Yeah, so 10, 10, 11, 12, all this all went under and it all, all went out. All that bend was all underwater. Rachel Strawn has lived about halfway between Wentworth and Pooncarry for 30 years. She runs sheep and does some dryland cropping on her 20,000 acre property, Tulney Point Station. She's got short brown hair and sad eyes. In her time, she's seen droughts and floods, good years and bad. But yeah, we haven't seen um, a decent river since 2012. Uh, that's the last time it got big on you? Yeah. It was flooding then, and that had about 25,000 megs a day going past here. It was just beautiful. <laughs> I paid Rachel a visit along with my travelling companions, writer John Hanscom and photographer Dion Georgopoulos. She's showing us the Batundi rocks, big tongues of stone which lap out into the riverbed. They're extremely significant to the local traditional owners, the Barkindji. And also very significant for the Europeans. It's a halfway point between Wentworth and Pooncarry. So station owners used to use this as a halfway point when they were travelling into town with horse and cart. The paddle steamers in the 1800s found this was one of the most dangerous corners for them to traverse. So in the late 1800s, they actually blew the rocks, which used to go out nearly to the other side of the bank, and they blew that for paddle steamer passage because, as you can imagine, you come down here in a bit higher river, as they got to the corner, they would have just got pushed into the rocks and did lots of damage, so there was a few barges lost. It's windy, so we retreat inside. Her house is on stilts and sits on a bend in the river. There's a river red gum on the edge of the bank, a good 10 metres from the current water level. I can see its messy tangle of roots poking out from the muddy escarpment. A rope swing dangles from a branch over the steep bank. It'd be a long swing into the drink from here, and the water is probably only waist deep. At the moment, the river is around 20 metres below Rachel's balcony. In a flood, she ties a dinghy to the balcony railing and they use it to get into town. The kids would take a boat to school. So we're a family farm where we took it over from a generational farm which had had this property since the mid-1800s. And we, my husband's family bought it in the 80s and we're the second generation of that family, but there'd been three generations in the Hipsley family before us. It's been an OK year. There is water flowing past the river beyond her porch, but it's just a trickle compared to floods of the past. It's been a decade since the river was high enough to give the rope swing a go. So Rachel's youngest daughter, Georgie, is eagerly awaiting a flood. The period of time that Georgie's seen the river is has been in pretty bad shape. So one of the things, like in 2010, um, when we had water lapping the lawn here and that, this tree out here, we've got a rope swing on it and you jump off that. And so Georgie was four at the time and our other daughter was ten and Georgie was always wanting to have a go and he's like, no, you can't do that until you're ten. <laughs> and the big thing is Georgie goes now, she goes, but I've been 10 for four years now <laughs> and I haven't still had a go at the rope swing. <laughs> that seems so cruel. 
Rachel is relieved to have the water they do have. She's seen it when the river is completely dry. So from the fish kills, it was over two years till we saw water here on that Easter Saturday. So that was, what, 27 months. But we still had water here, but the water was of such poor water quality as well and deteriorating. So, so it's not like just losing it overnight. It's a slow thing, and I think that's where the build-up of stress and coping with it, you don't notice it building until the relief comes. It's not like a bushfire that happens overnight and everything's burnt and lost. It's a slow creep. I'm Tom Melville, and this is Forgotten River, a Voice of Real Australia series on an outback tragedy, the death of the Darling River. Last week we were in Menindee, the poster child for Darling struggles, where a mass fish kill near one of the most important habitats for bird and fish in the country made headlines around the world. In this episode we meet station owners left in the lurch and delve into the politics and the fight for the Darling River. I don't know how, how you'd actually explain how you'd feel you'd be gutted, I'd say, because that's to get up, I walk down the shed every morning, and you see the river. There's birds. Yeah. I don't know. I reckon farmers aren't greenies, but I reckon we're the biggest greenies alive. Because it's, it's your living, it's your livelihood. You don't look after it. You've got nothing. And that's what these people seem to re- don't seem to realise. I just, yeah. Just a few minutes out of Pooncarry is Grazier Trevor Smith's property. Pooncarry is a town of 166-odd on the banks of the Darling. Trevor has deep roots in this part of the world. Just about any smith you find along the Lower Darling is probably some kind of cousin. Dad still tells stories about having to dig channels along the bottom of the river from the hull upstream to get water to pump for the house with the windmill because they didn't have little Honda motors and things like that. Just like everyone, he's relieved to have water back in the system. The river acts as a boundary fence for Trevor's property. And when the river stops flowing, he loses a good chunk of feeding pasture. I've got 22 kilometres of riverfront, and therefore I lose 22 kilometres of boundary fence. At some stages, there can be a lot of good fattening feed on, and, yeah, you're losing thousands and thousands of dollars if you can't, can't get your sheep fat. Whereas if the river was flowing, you could fatten them in there and put them to market and get your premium price. He draws all his water from the river, but over the last couple of years, the soupy green water which remained in the riverbed was of such poor quality, he wouldn't even let his staff shower in it. I'd had to send me shearers downtown to, to bathe overnight because the water, because I just pumped straight out of the river and because they weren't used to it, I was frightened that they'd get allergy or poisoning or whatever because some of the families around here with small children at the time were having trouble with rashes and stuff like that. And these blokes from, were from down in country Victoria and wouldn't have been used to that sort of thing. Trevor's cousin on the other side of the river lost flock due to the fickle nature of the flow. We were told we had to let water out of our bank and it dropped it pretty quick. He lost a couple of hundred, I think it was, young ewes, because they got to the water, had a drink, 
and were poor because of the drought and couldn't turn around and get back out again. He wasn't there at the time and some fishermen rang him up one night and said, you've got sheep in the river and of course he went up and done what he could by boat but it was too late for a lot of them. And that's just a loss you don't regain. They're not just an animal that's running around. They're part of your business and, yeah, you look after them the best you can. And when you get circumstances like that, well, it's not real good. The Dry River a few years ago was not the first cease-to-flow event Rachel has experienced in her time at Tolney Point Station. It's the third, but it was by far the longest. She's convinced they're getting worse. Now, because this is the third cease-to-flow that we've seen since the 1940s, so in the last 70 years we've had three main cease-to-flows, and they've all happened in the last 15 years, which is... um, very um, evident (laughs) when you look at these. Disasters are coming quicker. They're coming quicker and the extraction and the ability to extract is becoming greater. The extraction Rachel is telling John and I about is upstream irrigation. Lower Darling communities trace their struggles to the explosion of irrigation in the Northern Basin, centred on places like Burke in northern New South Wales and St George in southern Queensland, cotton country. During the last cease to flow event, there was a lot of media coverage of the mass fish deaths further north, around the town of Menindi, which we talked about in the last episode. But Rachel tells me they had their own fish die down here too. This is some of the fish that we found. Oh God. How big is how big is that fish? Well, he would have been over a metre. And you just, you walked along the riverbed, that's walking along the riverbed. Which now is, you know, there's water in it at the moment. Mm. How old's that fish? Oh, I don't know, he'd probably be 50 odd years. The Darling isn't a canal. There are pools of deeper water in the riverbed, nooks that fish love, and these big holes dry up last. Rachel remembers the puddles crowded with fish, clinging to life in the last available water in the river. Volunteers came to the property to pick them up and transport them downstream. And yeah, they they were just in tears. They said, we've never seen anything so cruel ever. It was just, I'm actually proud of myself that I haven't cried today. (laughs) I um, don't handle it very well sometimes, but when those fish kills were happening too, they were like, growing men walking the banks, just crying. It's not normal. It was not not normal at all. So it's, um, no one should have to live through it, I don't think. The river may have slowed to a stop over 18 or so months, but it did return. Suddenly, around Easter 2020, there was water flowing past her house again, probably 10 or 15 metres off the good flood they got a decade ago, but she's happy. You don't think you're stressed and people would come here and go, can we help? Are you stressed? Like, are you depressed? Are you this? Are you that? And you go, no, 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 it's fine. Just, you've had your five minutes. Can you go so I can get on and do with what we've got to do? But when that water come down, it's like, I don't think people who have not experienced it really understand the relief. Like, it's just phenomenal, like, And the sound, the sound comes back. 
it was Easter Saturday when the water come down and we met it at our boundary at 5am and I walked with it. Do you hear it got to the houses here at lunchtime? And the cicadas and the birds, all these noise and then the sound of it going over the dry and filling up the cracks and it was just incredible. It was just beautiful and the relief. The town of Pooncarry sits on a bend in the Darling. In the paddle steamer days, it was a glittering port town, a key stop taking high-quality wool south to market and supplies north to the vast pastoral leases which hug the river. Today, it's mainly a stop for grey nomads doing the Darling River Run, an epic outback journey of over 900 k's of mostly unsealed road from Burke to Wentworth following the Darling. There's a pub, a cafe, a shop and takeaway, and some boutique accommodation for travellers. I wanted to find out how townies feel about the river, so naturally I stopped in at the local pub. My name's Josh Sherd, I'm the public of the, the Telegraph Hotel in Pooncarry. The Pooncarry Telegraph Hotel is an icon. Built in 1879, it's an old white brick and tin building on the corner of Tarkula Street. Inside it's filled with photos and mementos highlighting the pub's history. Josh has been here eight years now and witnessed two periods where the river stopped flowing. Yeah, so the first time when the river dried, it was only for a short time, it was like eight or ten months or something, that it was ceased to flow, and things weren't so bad. You, you know, you had a bit of a puddle there, you could water the grass and keep your garden alive and things like that. The next time, like, it was 18 months or more, and there was no water to pump on the lawns and everything. So the last time the river went dry, the moon around town was sort of, you know, everyone's walking along kicking their feet like there was, it was like living in a desert, but you're in town, like there was nothing alive. And it's an older population in town. Like the, the oldies, they like their gardens, they like their flowers and stuff like that. Without the water, they've got nothing to do and they, they feel lost. Up the road is Val Kitson's port pit stop, where we find her behind the counter frying up some bacon for a customer. It's a one-stop shop for fuel, fishing bait and bags of ice. The nearest supermarket is an hour and a half away, so Val's takeaway is also the general store. If you find yourself in Pooncarry, you can get a decent feed here, and then I'd recommend wandering a couple of hundred metres through the park down to the river. But even to see a mighty river such as that reduced to a puddle, that must feel pretty... Disheartening. Very disheartening. When you see it wasted, we'll say. We call it wasted. Downstream probably don't call it wasted, but we know it goes into the sea. A lot of it goes into the sea. Last time it came, 2016, before this time when it came, between that and last year when it came back again, they said it was running down through the Murray Mouth to flush the Murray Mouth. People down here are used to the boom and bust cycle of the outback. It's a natural part of life. But like we discussed in episode one, the system isn't natural, not these days. The Lower Dowling is managed by dozens of locks, weirs and channels. Flows running down the river at Pooncarry have come from thousands of kilometres away, in Queensland and northern New South Wales. It contributes to a sense that decisions are made far away and are impossible to understand. Val tells me about the last time water got scarce and had to be trucked into town. This town exists because of the river. People rely on it, and suddenly they had to find water elsewhere. We had water carted here from the Murray. They'll bring truck boats up, putting in our... So that was purely for us sharing and, and washing. But some properties were getting, they had to set up a tank system 
like polytanks or something, and they'll get even water carded. I know in a Wentworth Shire, or along Wentworth Shire, anywhere around here, if they wanted water, they can get water carded if they didn't have bores. Because no one had bores, obviously, because they relied on river all their lives, and all their parents' lives, probably. Here's Josh again. Yeah, it affects the other, yeah, some people different. Like, yeah, it's, it's a part of living out here. Like, if it's a drought, it's a drought. But when it's a man-made drought, well, that's a different story too. When Josh talks about a man-made drought, he's referring to the management of the Menindee Lakes up north. Water might pool briefly in the region, but then it's taken away again. As you heard in the last episode, the draining of Menindee Lakes in the past has been extremely controversial. Well, yes, South Australia's entitled to the water, but does it have to come from Menindee? Like, why can't it come through the Murray where it rains further up in the snowies and all that sort of thing most of the year round? Like, Western New South Wales, it rains bugger all. And yeah, it is disheartening when you see it running past the door and you know that what's going to happen at the end of it, that you're going to probably have 8, 10, 12 months where you're going to have ceased to flow and dry river. It's a strange feeling. You know it's going to happen, but you can't do anything about it. Josh is upbeat now that there's water in the system. But the reality is that the river could just run dry again. At the moment, yeah, it's all hunky-dory. You can put your boat in and go for a drive in the boat and go fishing and do whatever, but how long for? How long is the water going to be there? Nobody knows. Some of the information, you know, isn't made available. Like early days when the river went dry the first time, the information, they, um, things they had at the hold, people from Water New South Wales and whatever else, they couldn't answer the questions. And tennis people, like the older people, were grumpy at that because they like well what's the point of coming out here and telling us this if you can't answer this Val says if the river dies the town goes with it it would harm the town for sure yeah hopefully it never happens but it would certainly harm the town because Poon Kerry is it's called the port for obvious reasons it used to be an old river port take the river away from that we've got no port again have we obviously it's a, it's a river town so yes You'd still have your few locals and your people going through, but you wouldn't have your campers coming here and up and down the river, everywhere. These days, Rachel Strawn believes this iconic stretch of river has been reduced to a mere delivery channel to the Murray. Water goes where the money is, north and south to large corporate cropping farms. Even the water itself has become a commodity. Sheep farmer Trevor Smith says you can't set your watch to it. Yeah, you've got no surety that you're going to... If they decide to drop it or something goes wrong and they run out of water, well, you've got nothing. Uh, within oh, in a matter of a couple of weeks, if it stops up the top, well, we're running dry down here. And that's no good for the town. No good for the businesses that are there. No good for the farmers that depend on it. And even the people that don't depend on the river, you know, they come into Pernkerry to the different things and that that we have. And, well, if there's nothing to come in, do well, they don't come in either. But, um, yeah, it's just a big hit for everybody. If you haven't got connectivity in the river, right from the top, you haven't got a river, really. Last year saw the end to a 27-month dry period. Much longer than the couple of months these communities have faced in the past, that dry period ended around Easter 2020. These happen periodically in the Lower Darling, although before 2000, the last one was in the 1940s. They appear to be getting longer. Many scientists agree that Murray Cod and river mussels need connectivity most of the time and probably wouldn't still be around if these prolonged no-flow times were natural. 
Trevor Smith and everyone I talk to down here put the lion's share of the blame for reduced inflows squarely on upstream communities, irrigators. And as far as I'm concerned, from Burke down virtually, they're just going to kill the river eventually. He's been actively involved in trying to get an even share for downstream. We seem to be getting somewhere sometimes and then next meeting you have with them, you back to square one or there's a heap of new people representing the government and you start again. And then you have another meeting in six months' time and they're all new again, so you start again. Trevor says he'd like to see more water coming into the state from Queensland's tributaries and a unified river system approach. It's a reminder that the Murray-Darling Basin's tendrils are long, reaching out across four states in the ACT and draining water from almost every major river in New South Wales and southern Queensland, west of the Great Divide, an area three times the size of Germany. That scale is part of the problem. The interstate nature of the river fragments its management. It appears that the water that falls in Queensland, as far as the Queensland government is concerned, is allowed to stay in Queensland. It doesn't have to come down the border to help Burke or any other lower township or community or just farmer on the river. They just... Well, they've got their business. They've been allowed to develop their business by the government. They've been given unbelievable latitude to develop their their dams and their cotton farms and, and that sort of thing and take all that water and not have to let it come further down. There is a plan in place to make sure the basin environment is protected, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Under the Water Act of 2007, the authority, or the MDBA, was set up to maintain the health of the environment. Under the Constitution, water is a state affair. The Commonwealth was able to get some power over it based on our international obligations to protect wetlands, which in the Murray-Darling Basin at the time were in terrible shape. The consensus in 2007 was that too much water was being diverted for agriculture and other uses, and that the health of the entire system was in freefall. In the 15 years since the Water Act, the decade since the MDBA released the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, and after billions of dollars have been spent on efficiency measures and water buybacks, that consensus has not changed. And communities like Pooncarry, Menindee, Wilcannia, only a few hundred odd k's from where the Darling ends at its confluence with the Murray, feel like they're bearing the brunt. I don't think we're getting a fair go. Pretty hard to say that you're getting cast aside. The rules have been set for the blokes up the top that they're allowed to take water at different flows and that sort of thing. And when they're allowed to start their pumps, they run the river backwards. So the water that's already gone past, it gets sucked back up to the stage where it doesn't flow. And we still don't get get what's supposed to have come past in the first place. Rachel Strawn of Tolney Point Station says it's not just cash croppers in the north. Menindee and the Lower Darling are sort of like piggy in the middle that we have competing interests in the north, but then we also have competing interests in the south wanting their bits. So north don't want to let it go, the south want it all, but we need to maintain the environment in the middle too. So Rachel used to grow citrus on the farm, but was told a few years ago that the government could no longer guarantee water for her permanent plantings. She tore them up and was told to seek compensation, which she eventually got. 
She says the way the system is currently being managed has led to a situation where profitable businesses like hers and her neighbours, which have been running for generations, are no longer viable. That now we're left with a river section and Menindee Lakes that needs rescuing. It's, it's very new and it's really horrible it's happening on our generational watch that for all the decades before it's been in pristine health and we were recognised as one of the healthiest sections of river for Murray cod breeding. It was the hatchery for yellow belly and perch and all throughout the river systems, most of the fish found in them, especially the native species, have originated in Menindee. But now that's not happening. So all of a sudden we've got environmentalists jumping up and down and people jumping up and down because they've just all of a sudden realised, like, well, what is different? But it's been a very death by a thousand cuts, really, of these incremental little changes that have led to it. But now, because they've put so many little changes in and they go, oh, but if we change it back, that's going to economically affect those people. Trevor Smith agrees. It interferes with everybody for the sake of a few greedy people that are working with the, in the law at the moment and that's where it's wrong. The water, well, I don't, I'm not sure what the Queensland Water Board are called, but them and Water New South Wales have got to get together and South Australia and work something out that works for everybody, not just a few. And that's what's happening at the moment. And people like him and Rachel feel they're getting left behind. Despite spending countless hours shuttling back and forth to water meetings, talking to politicians and bureaucrats, all of it unpaid except for some reimbursement for fuel at the same time as they're trying to run businesses and build families. I'm learning about politics, that it's not always fair. (laughs) But I don't think it's really been raised the detriment that some of the decisions and the disparity of the the bias that comes with that that decision-making. And, and their ability to lobby has been incredible. Like, they will have full-time people who just deal with water and that. We're, we're still running farms and families here and that. And we love farming. We love our, our local environment and our local community. And, and, and we're here as generational farmers wanting to preserve it for the next generation. So we still need to make money to go on but it's not our main drive that we have to make money for our shareholders. We're we're creating a paradise, as you've seen here, for our next generation and and families and friends and those who pass by to enjoy. Water has become bogged down by politics, and I wonder how people like Trevor keep at it after all these years. Well, if you don't, they win. And you walk away with nothing. And be like what we've said up there before, you'd just be walking away from the place and, and, well, your future and your heritage and just a load of crap. I'm not that good with words, so um, it's very hard to explain that they can do that to you and keep doing it to you regardless of how much time. And if you don't put the time and the energy in, well, that's it, it's finished. For Rachel, the solution is simple. The way to fix it is 
you have to have storage targets and flow targets throughout the whole system. You can't just siloize each section. So you can't say the Gwide Valley has flow targets within this valley. Even though they're all connected, none of their, their water sharing plans actually connect and they don't recognise downstream needs of each other. That's where we have to actually have policy that protects the base health of the river and have flow targets that... Rachel wants the water to be allowed to run the length of the system, prioritising the health of the river first and irrigation last. That would allow low flows to charge aquifers, maintain environments for animals, fish and the iconic river red gums. Then ideally you wouldn't have a situation where people couldn't shower due to the water quality being so poor. The floodplains get a drink, the billabongs fill up, the birds and the fish can breed. In Rachel's words, it does the country a world of good. When there's water in the system, like now for example, Rachel is happy for irrigation to take place. But it's a boom and bust environment. And she argues that extraction is happening at unsustainable levels upstream and must be curtailed. When times are good, we have a healthy river, the kids play in the river, we hunt, we gather, we enjoy it, we leave, leave it be, let it do its own thing. And it provides for everyone, but, yeah, I don't know. I find it a quite an American way of accessing water in the system that, yeah, just because it's there at your front door doesn't necessarily mean that you can just take as much as you want. And some commentators say it's a bit like a drug because... You get a bit, then you want a bit more, so you build a bigger dam. <laughs> it has to be sustainable, not just for your little piece of the pie, but, but for the rest, rest of it as well. What Rachel is saying is hugely controversial. Many rural communities around Australia only exist because of irrigation, and expansion has been encouraged for decades. The intention behind the guide to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was to provide, using the best available science, a pathway to clawing back up to nearly 7,000 gigalitres per year of water for the environment. That's the equivalent of 14 Sydney harbours of water. For context, total extraction across the whole of the system in 2012 was a little under 11,000 gigalitres. So scientists are talking about slashing extraction by more than half. Is it the intention of the MDBA to bankrupt regional Australia? When the guide was released in October 2010, the reaction in the bush was horror. If applied as written, it would have taken a wrecking ball to communities throughout the basin. In Griffith, a group of irrigators burned copies of the guide as an act of protest. We can't put it out because we've got no water if they take it out. Speaking in 2010, the then federal opposition spokesperson on water, Barnaby Joyce, said... They're saving the environment now and counting the bodies later. A review was undertaken, and that figure was dropped to 2,750 gigalitres per year in 2012, and then again to 2,075 gigalitres per year in 2018. This is to be achieved using buybacks and on-farm efficiency increases. Very few scientists believe those figures are enough to avert ecological collapse in the system. You have hurt our business. You have hurt But the outrage and the fury heard from irrigation-dependent communities when the guide was released loom heavily over water politics. The environment isn't getting that water without a fight. And I think it's, it's about being a good citizen and those people are willing to put their economic interests in front of being a good citizen 
to Australia and maintaining Australia, the health of its environment. The human cost, I don't think, and I don't know if it is able to be measurable. And part of that human cost is actually having a healthy environment to live in. I think the Aboriginal people really understand it, especially the elders locally here, more so than I think those who haven't faced a, a dry river in that. They're seeing the consequences on their families. We're seeing the consequences on, on our local communities. Who, the situation appears to be getting yeah, worse, not better. The MDBA suggested in a 2018 report that since 2000 there have been much longer periods of no to very low flows, and irrigation is a significant factor. It's a devastating reality for people like Rachel Strawn and Trevor Smith. Look, we know roughly, you know, you regulate your flows into these dams and and that sort of thing, and everybody gets a fair share, but they don't want to share. Whoever gets first crack at it, they get it, and the rest of them, yeah... You just take your turn. If there's nothing left, bad luck. As I said, like from here to Menindi, there's 70 family farms. We're not a, we're not big on someone's electoral sheep. We're, we're a few voices. The Northern Irrigators are well-heeled, often corporate affairs. They've got lobbyists in Canberra, Sydney and Brisbane who can make representations to government on their behalf. People along the forgotten part of the river are under-resourced in so many ways. But despite the titanic battle Rachel has spent years fighting on behalf of her business, her kids and the river itself, she's adamant the river won't die, that it can be saved. It's not just our generation or, or my children's generations to come, it's all of us. And does it weigh heavily on your mind that potentially and through no lack of fighting on your part that the story might not have that many more chapters left? Oh, no, it will. We'll win. People will see the (laughs) reason. (laughs) I don't think the Australian people want to see the Darling River or the Murray River dead. So it's going to end in in good chapters. Unravelling the way water is regulated through the system is as complex as the network of tributaries and aquifers that feed its rivers. A headache-inducing collection of numbers, terms and acronyms. To the outsider, the language of water management can be impenetrable. But at the centre of all those numbers and amendments are people. People like Rachel, who lost her irrigation guarantee. People like Trevor, who lost land and sheep. Towns that are dwindling. Arid land that's been abandoned. Fish that are dying birds that have flown away. These are new problems wrought upon the landscape by people and policy. This is a transgenerational drama. This is a transgenerational genocide. And government's got to help us by giving our rights, our justice. Instead of fining those cotton thieves up there, jail them. They need to be jailed. Next episode, we'll introduce you to the people who have lived in harmony with the river for over 40,000 years. You know, the only way small communities do get on is everyone's got to unite and be together as one. There's no black, there's no white. It's, it's, it's together. It's one mob. You know, when the river's up, the town's up. You know, when the river's down, the town down, you know.
That was episode two of Forgotten River, a Voice of Real Australia miniseries. For more stories from the Darling, to see the gorgeous photos of the place, or watch the videos, head to your local ACM news site such as the Canberra Times. This series was reported by me, your host, Tom Melville, and writer John Hanscom, with pictures by Dion Georgiopoulos. Production, mixing and sound design by Laura Corrigan. Our assistant producer is intern Ethan Hamilton. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. For more stories from Beyond the Big Cities, search for Voice of Real Australia in your podcast player. This podcast is recorded on Ngunnawal and Ngambri country in Canberra. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and James Joyce. This is an ACM podcast.